Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Joanna Benn, Director of Strategic Communications Partnerships and Special Projects at the Nature Conservancy. It was recorded in November 2022. Jo specialises in communicating, campaigning and writing on international environmental issues, and having started her career as a broadcast journalist, has worked across the globe for think tanks, foundations and NGOs, as well as the United Nations Environment Programme. Our conversation jumps off from a recent article that Jo wrote, linked in the show notes. It's about her feeling that the environmental movement is somewhat lacking when it comes to imagination, as well as on getting real with its audiences and providing vivid visions of the future and what it will entail for all of us. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Joanna Ben. Nice to meet you, Jo. How nice are you doing? You I'm all right, I'm all right. Obviously, you know, it's busy time, climate cop in Egypt, nature cop coming up uh, two weeks after that. So, yeah, but fine. Yeah, no, it's good. Good. It's nice, to, nice to do this. I think it's wonderful to have you uh, speaking on this subject. Um, but I want to start before we dive into everything else on the question that I like to ask everybody I speak to, um, which is from your perspective, how can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effect of climate change in the first place? It's a question that many of us have been grappling with, I think, for decades. My opinion on it has probably changed in the last few years. I think I used to be in that quite naive uh, mindset 20 odd years ago when I first started working on environmental issues. Give people the facts, tell them the problems, tell them what the solutions are. That'll fix everything. Obviously, we've we've learned since then um, that that doesn't work. Uh, even if we don't go into nefarious plot spoilers and and lobbyists and uh, misinformation, even if we leave all of that aside, just in the bare bones of there's a problem, there's an issue, we know how to fix this, actually, and it shouldn't be that hard to do. Now now I seem to think that um, we need a different approach to communications. Um, we need something more human. We need something that brings in the emotions a lot more, but without becoming... New agey or Pollyanna-ish about the solutions. I feel, I feel personally that we need to be a lot more realistic with our communications. Uh, interestingly, there was an article just in The Economist last week saying we're not going to hit 1.5. We need to have a real, realistic conversation. And I read that headline and I, was, I thought, absolutely. We need to get real with our communications. We need to tell people not only what's happening, not only why it's happening, not only, yes, what we can do about it, but where the pain points will come, how lifestyles will need to change um, and have a real conversation about it, how people's lives are going to have to change. So I think we've got to get a lot more sophisticated and a lot more real with our communication. Yeah, maybe the, the, the kind of next place to go is what do we mean by real and, and how, do we, how do we discuss real <laughs> without um, making everybody switch off, I suppose. One of the big things that seems to come back from, at least from the academic side of science communication and science communication research and particularly in climate uh, communication research is if we get too real <laughs> um, then it can lead to kind of apathy and inaction so how can we kind of tread the line between both 
Yes, it's it it is the essential conundrum. We've all we've all read the science, we've all read the studies, the academia that say don't overwhelm people, don't tell people it's hopeless, compassion fatigue, everyone switches off, no one will do anything. And and of course that there is a huge amount of truth in that. I do, however, think um there is a balance between dooming, it's all too late, we can't do anything, uh, which is also quite an easy cynical approach and actually an easier path to go down. Let's let it all happen. There's nothing we can do. No, of course, there's plenty we can do. We have plenty of agency. We're humans. We, we've got ourselves into the situation. Of course, there's a way out of it. In my sense, I feel that being real is very much about painting a realistic picture about what life will look like. So as an example, there was a headline in The Guardian last week, eat two hamburgers a week to save the climate. I thought that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, <laughs> what does that mean? Of course, it wasn't really eat two hamburgers a week uh, to save the climate. It was a it was a long, complex report distilled into a headline uh, about future scenarios and, frankly, how we're missing uh, every collective goal on climate that we have um, agreed to. And one of the one of the points was in the Western world, we do need to reduce meat consumption to no more than two burgers a week. And I I looked at it and I thought. In some ways, the, the journalist in me is, is a little frustrated. It's a little annoyed. It's overly simplistic. And then the humanist or the storyteller in me thought, actually, that kind of works. I read the headline. I read the story. And if actually someone says to me, OK, you shouldn't be eating more than two hamburgers a week equivalent of meat. At least that's tangible. At least that's real. So for me, being real is giving a few specifics. It's it's not sugarcoating what's going to happen. It's not sugarcoating and saying we're not going to have heat waves. Um, the air is not going to stay uh, clean if we don't do this. Um, we're going to have to farm even more fish if we overfish anymore. It, it's not It's not pretending that we won't have to adapt. And I think having a lot more conversations about adaptation and what that really means for everyone. You know, we tend to think, oh, it's the global south. Yes, it is the global south because they're being hit so hard and fast. But we all need to adapt. Every single person on the planet needs to adapt. But we, we don't understand what that means. I specifically don't understand what that means as a Londoner. What does that mean I have to adapt? I want that story to be told. So to me, that's what being realistic about communications means. Wonderful. What a great answer. And, I, I, you know, the, the whole two burgers thing is quite interesting because if you're eating five burgers worth of meat per week great that's a reduction but if your fear is that you know we're all going to be vegans because that's the counter narrative that's coming at us then then this presents a very real and concrete sort of vision and vision is something that i wanted to get to um based on this piece that you wrote um about the crisis of imagination within the environmental movement i wondered if you could give listeners a bit of an introduction to this line of thought and why it's a problem and why it thwarts successful mm. communication. Sure. Um, so for listeners, uh, I wrote an article uh, inspired by a science fiction novel based on climate change, which is the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I started this in the heatwave in London, where I was genuinely very, very scared and distressed, uh, thinking we've hit the edge, we've hit the precipice. Um, is there any way back from this? And how are we communicating it? And because for many of us that have been privileged in sport and hadn't really 
experience the direct impacts of climate change. We, we, all of us have been saying for years, oh, people will take it seriously when it really affects them, when when their house is flooded, when their kids can't go outside in the garden to play, when there's a water shortage, people will take it seriously. And unfortunately, that's probably true. Uh, we need to experience something to really feel it. And this is where even as someone who loves words, who lives with words, who adores uh, the worlds we can paint with words, uh, words are failing us because unless we can really feel through them, I don't think we're going to act. So this is my feeling reading this novel, uh, having worked on all kinds of environmental issues for well over two decades uh, and having spent 40 to 60 hours a week doing this job, it was a novel that really made me, and still stays with me, that keeps me up at night. It's a novel, it was the opening chapter of a novel describing a catastrophic heat wave in India and the impacts on the human body and the impacts on the mind and the feeling and the words that were used being boiled, being poached, um, describing in horrific detail the deaths of millions of people. I can't get those images out of my mind. I've seen lots of sci-fi films and I've worked on many of the IPCC uh, climate change reports in terms of condensing that and turning them into infographics and making them understandable and checking out the baselines. Uh, you know, I've done all that work and I, and, and I will be honest, I don't think about it too much. Again, those facts and figures. Ironically, even before this podcast, I suddenly started scrambling, thinking, well, what are the latest numbers? And I thought, I don't need to talk about numbers. People know the numbers on climate change. And if they don't know the numbers, does that even matter? Do they need to know that we're not on track for 1.5? Do they need to know what the emission curve is? Do they need to know what the carbon budget is? No, actually. People that work in it, in government, yes. But the, the majority of us don't need to know that. So when I say it's a crisis of imagination, I think there is a huge need and a huge body of work that is needed to paint a picture, again, as I was saying earlier, of what society will actually look like. Not utopian, not that there's going to necessarily be gardens on every rooftop and trees lining every street. I mean, that would all be glorious and wonderful, but that might not be realistic. There probably will be sea level rise that people will probably have to migrate if we don't act very quickly. What does that look like? And what's going to happen? Let's not leave it till the last minute. Let's paint that situation. Let's see and feel what a new society would look like. Um, every book on solutions, whether it's Drawdown, whether it's, um, you know, The Future We Choose by Christiana Figueres and Tim Rivet Karnak, whether it's The Earth for All, all provide a series of solutions. Uh, to mitigate poverty, to include regenerative ag, and all of it is probably accurate and probably true, but I can't feel it. I don't understand it, and I don't know what it looks like in my own life. It feels like a different world out there that people are describing, and all of us need to somehow work to make this world, the one we're actually in, this Zoom call that I'm on with you, the podcast that your listeners are going to be listening to in their lounges or in their cars or on their walks, What's that world actually going to look like? So I feel, and again, it's a very personal opinion. I feel like we're using words to obscure the truth. Oh, 1.5 and under. Well, what if we're not going to reach 1.5? And then we say things like, all coral reefs will die if we don't get to 1.5 and under. Well, what does that mean? So I think that's where the crisis of imagination comes from. We really need to be real about the world we're going to be living in in the next 10 to 50 years. For for me, I mean, I was a huge fan of 
military for the future. I mean, I, I think it, I think its magic comes from the fact that it is not set two thousand years in the future or after we've colonized Mars or whatever. It's 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 like tomorrow. It's it's happening and imagining something that's going to happen in our lifetimes. And and I don't think that we've necessarily focused that close before. And I think that's maybe why that book had such a huge impact. The the characters, the organizations, you you think about like, oh, maybe that's these people. Maybe that's them. It's so near to us now that you're able to project as a as a reader, you know, a big part of this of of, of fiction writing, I suppose, this this world building aspect of it and creating a, a world that you can dive into. I feel like it's our world. It's um it's so close and so tangible. And perhaps that's why it gives so much hope, that book, as well as despair, because it it makes it seem so achievable. Um, you know, the the detail that he goes into in different policies and funding structures and, and all these things that see you're reading them and you're like, but don't we have this? And if we don't why, have why, this, why, why, we doing why this? don't we I have know. this? <laughs> why are we doing this? I know, I know. I mean, yeah, I completely agree. I um, thank you for bringing that up. You've uh, put that together beautifully, succinctly put it. It is our world. It's set in the 2020s up to 2040s. Um, it's a very recent book. It is just fictionalized enough that we can project into a future that actually is probably quite realistic. Um, it doesn't avoid challenges in the beginning of the book there's a an idea that india does huge scale geoengineering which of course is one of the very controversial issues in climate change and it covers all of it you know explains oh there might be knock-on effects it can be dangerous we don't have individual you know there is no such thing as individual airspace above a country etc it doesn't make light of any of the possible responses i wouldn't say solutions because they're responses at times but you're right it does slowly turn the climate crisis around using tools and ideas that have been circulating for decades they haven't been implemented most of them well they certainly haven't been implemented at scale but all the ideas he's put in here are 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 being looked at and are genuine climate solutions um so it is it is inspiring it is quite depressing, but it's very real. And I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation about what is it about communicating climate change in a real way? What's going to have to happen? We're not great in the environmental movement about talking about trade-offs. For every good thing we do, there's going to be something that probably isn't as great. I think that's where my frustration comes. You know, we, we tend to condense because of the nature of communications in, in the modern world, everything into a tweet or a press release or a report that we then summarize and we turn it into an exact summary because no one's got time to read anything anymore, so we turn it into 10 points. That's not really going to cut it. We have to somehow world build, to use your phrase. We need to build the world that people can actually see and imagine. I don't know if you've read The Future We Choose by Christiana Figueres and Tom Ruvent-Karnak. Its first few chapters are, are written beautifully as fiction. One is a terrible future and one is a bright, <laughs> happy future for humanity. And it's written in a, quite a similar style, actually, to sci-fi. And it's brilliant. It's so readable. But then we go into the very technical solution for the rest of the book. And it becomes a little drier and a little bit more niche. 
and it loses the energy and the impetus. And part of me was thinking, oh, it would have been great if you'd have turned the whole book into a novel, because actually I think that's what we need to do. We need to imagine it properly. There's got to be a way of world building in a better way um, and communicating that in a way that people get excited about, because at the moment it's really upsetting and depressing. I can't talk to any of my friends that don't work on environmental issues about about these issues. Uh, it's overwhelming and they find it depressing. So if I can't talk to my peer group, then we have a problem if we can't even talk about what's happening. But it may be if I could say to them, hey, wouldn't you like to live in a world that looked like this or a city that felt like this? Then people might actually have the conversation and get excited. Yeah, excitement's an interesting place to go. Not just optimistic, but excited. That's an mm. important distinction, I think. The environmental movement might not have visions of the future, but opponents of the environmental movement certainly do. And they're very near future visions. And they're for many people, they are risk narratives, which means people pay attention. And they might be, you're not going to go on holiday anymore. You're not going to get to eat meat anymore. You know, someone else is going to get your job. Your job is not going to be useful anymore. So these are real loss narratives. And if we know anything about humans, they hate losing things more than they love gaining the same thing. So I feel like there's an additional challenge that it's not just to produce exciting visions of the future, but to also combat those anti-narratives from climate skeptics, proponents of the status quo, you know, opponents of progress on climate mitigation. Um, mm. It seems like a another ladder to climb, maybe. I think this is where we come right back to where we started and maybe what inspired my article is that we have almost shortened narratives. Um, we have bullets, uh, but we haven't done a good job of describing what they look like, feel like, smell like. So for all the all the narratives, to use some of the examples which you've brought up, which are which are of course accurate, you know, uh, you know, there'll be job losses. Well, we've actually got loads of numbers to show that, you know, natural climate solutions, nature-based solutions, going green will generate as many, if not more, jobs. But there'll be a transition. So where we where we're really poor at describing is the transition. We haven't worked out that that bridge. Um, and that's, that's, I think, where people inhale and get scared um, and, and fall back on the, you know, narratives of the past. I see we're, we're coming up to the last couple of minutes. Um, so I just wanted to throw some, I, I don't want to call them quick fire questions, but I guess that's what oh, they gosh. are. Go on. <laughs> What's, in your opinion, the single most important aspect of communication that communicators of climate change um, of climate mitigation solutions, etc., working in this field, um, should be paying attention to in their communication endeavours. Mm, gosh, I think actually, you know, it comes back to the, the, the there's a there's a truism that campaigners use that someone has to hear something six times in six ways before they understand it or believe it. Um, and actually, I think we need to communicate more. Um, maybe it's not even better. Maybe it is more 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 and just trying to get the messages out to the right people so of course you know saying what does that mean to communicators you know and we all love to go well who's the audience and what are we trying to say and we, you know but it's really getting to the the individuals and the key people that have influence at the moment and really persuading them because i think fundamentally most people want things to change i think most people know we're in crisis 
they don't know the narratives, they don't know what to suggest, they don't know what to do. Um, and I think if we can make their lives a little easier with some pithy, well-prepared sound bites and some messaging and keep putting it in their brains, <laughs> uh, I think that's probably something we can do. I mean, things like your podcast are great. You know, I mean, the more we can keep talking about these issues with some depth, I think it's going to be useful. Um, if we can get lots of people to listen to lots of people talking about it, perhaps the penny will drop. Um, it feels very intimidating and I think it feels very scary for communicators as well knowing the scale of the challenge um i mean on my bad days i think god you know leonardo DiCaprio made a film about this and still no one cares on my good days i think things are shifting things are changing you know this used to be a niche issue it's not niche anymore um and people are looking at it with a different lens they're looking at it as a more of a whole of society approach i think things are changing slowly i don't think they're changing fast enough but um I, 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 I'm still hopeful that we can get there and that we need to communicate more and in with more nuance and more depth. The last question is the kind of, um, it's the, it's the sister to the, the previous question, which is what's the biggest mistake that you see communications professionals, science communicators, politicians, even whoever make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? I think it is, only communicating the impacts of climate change. Um, it's too easy for people to ignore. Um, I think it's important to do that. But, you know, whether it's from the floating polar bear images that no one really uses anymore, it's distressing, it's upsetting, and it makes me feel powerless. So I think that comes back to our early conversation about, you know, people say, well, don't, you know, don't talk about everything miserable and bad because people do switch off. And I think there is something in that. Um, but I, and I hate to sound a bit like a broken record, but I think it is, you know, it is, it's, it's almost talking to people, um, as you would a friend. It's, you know, we've got ourselves into a pretty big mess here. Um, I don't particularly like the word climate emergency because I don't think that people are acting on it as an emergency. So now it's devalued the word. Lots of cities have declared climate emergencies and they're not doing anything about it. Um, so, you know, to paraphrase Greta Thunberg, I mean, she's right. You know, the house is on fire and we're all looking at it burning because it hasn't yet uh, impacted most of us quite dramatically enough in the West in the west you know just a caveat that although of course that is changing we're seeing wildfires all over the place and floods and terrible things so um but it is it, i think the the challenge is not to as i wrote in my article to move from the there's a crisis these are the victims you know very typical news reporting this is the next step it's we're in a crisis we need all of you to uh be prepared to change something in your lives more citizen assemblies, getting people involved, empowering people. I mean, it's not just a comms issue at this point. It's got to become a whole of society issue. But in the meantime, you know, communications people can start asking for more things like citizens assemblies and, and, and finding out more surveys of what people are prepared to do and accept in different countries, what people want. You know, we, we know something like 80% of people are concerned about the climate globally. Great. What are they prepared to then do about it? So I think we need a little bit more um, work on that side of things. Lovely stuff. It was such a real pleasure to speak with Joe, as I'm sure you could tell. But what stuck with you from this conversation? 
what can you apply to your own communications efforts? For me, it's a dedication to being honest with the audience. We hear a lot in climate change communications about not being doomy, not leading with guilt or fear appeals, and needing to be optimistic in our outreach. But that doesn't necessarily mean we have to sugarcoat the future that's in store for us. At the same time as embracing that unflinching truth-telling, there's also the work that needs to be done in imagining what it's all going to mean in our lives. What stories are there that we could be telling? Real, exciting stories of the near future. As Joe put it, let's help people see and feel what it'll all be like. So those are the things that I'll be keeping in mind. But how about you? I suppose another piece of advice, for those of you who are yet to do so, is to read The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a fantastic and energising holiday read. You're going to love it. Thanks to Joanna Ben for taking the time to share her perspectives with the show. You can find links to the article that made me reach out to Joe in the first place, as well as some other relevant resources, in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing, so you never miss one. Easy. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit, to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this essential task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.